The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him, and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 35, Ecumenism Month. Baptist Lewis? After Hours with Dr. Leighton Flowers. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. And this season we've been talking about love, and we worked our way through Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And with that behind us, we're now in Ecumenism Month, speaking to people who love C.S. Lewis, but who come from a diverse range of religious backgrounds, Calvinism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and today, Baptist, and specifically a Texas Baptist, Dr. Leighton Flowers. Dr. Leighton Flowers earned a bachelor's degree in applied theology from Hardin-Simmons University. He received a Master's of Divinity with Biblical Languages from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and completed his doctorate at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Leighton has served as pastor of a local church for over 10 years. He is the host of the Soteriology 101 podcast, and he served as the director of youth evangelism for Texas Baptist for 13 years, and in 2018 was named the director of evangelism and apologetics. Leighton regularly travels to churches of all sizes to conduct seminars that specialize in evangelism and apologetics. And together with his wife, Laura, they have four children and live just outside of Dallas, where he also serves as an adjunct professor of theology for Trinity Seminary. Dr. Leighton Flowers, welcome to Pines with Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. Now, you first came on my radar through a certain sweater vest wearing Calvinist. I had been trying to understand Calvinist theology better, and so I've been listening to Dr. James White on The Dividing Line. And I noticed he mentioned you rather a lot. Maybe it was just that period that I was listening. And then I later discovered Braxton Hunter and became an avid listener of Trinity Radio, where I heard you also mentioned, but in a rather more favorable light, shall we say. <laughs> and so when we decided to do an Ecumenism Month here on Pints with Jack, I wanted to make sure that we had Calvinism represented. And Pastor Douglas Wilson, who records the Sweater Vest Dialogues with Dr. White, had just brought out a book on Lewis, so he was an obvious choice. And he was actually one of the first interviews I recorded this season, long before we began the Ecumenism Month. But as I started to record more of these episodes, I thought it'd be good to have a counterpoint from a non-Calvinist who also loves Lewis. And after listening to some of your Soteriology 101 podcast, you seem like the obvious choice, since you could both represent another denomination, namely the Baptists, and you're also a former Calvinist. Well, I, I do uh, love Lewis. I don't claim to be in any way a scholar on Lewis. Uh, he's had influence on my life because I think of his uh, great writing skill as he's influenced many. Um, and I know that he's looked on very favorably among my Calvinist uh, uh, peers as well as my non-Calvinist peers. And almost all of Baptists that I respect and look up to have a respect for C.S. Lewis as well. Um, and and so he he kind of has the ability, it seems, to stretch uh, above and beyond all of these different um, uh, diverging paths, if you will, among uh, Protestants as well as uh, even some Catholics, I'm sure. And and so I, I, that's one of the reasons I think that we can all uh, at least agree on the point that Lewis was a, a huge influential factor in Christian history, as well as uh, an inspiration to us all in one level or another. Absolutely. 
Now, I've heard it said that Jews don't recognize Jesus as a son of God, Protestants don't recognize the Pope, and Baptists don't recognize each other in the liquor store. So with that, <laughs> are you drinking anything today? I do, I, I do have coffee uh, in, in my cup here right now. So. <laughs> sure, sure. Listeners, it's definitely coffee. <laughs> well, I'm drinking the last beer that I bought with my brother-in-law, a Lagunitas Daytime. And so let's raise a glass to a patron supporter, Vince Obsitnik. Vince, may the Lord richly provide you his grace in your life and fill you with Easter joy. Cheers. Cheers. So to kick things off, could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your faith journey? I was raised in a Christian home, a Baptist Christian home. My dad was the youth pastor of the Baptist church, Southern Baptist church I was raised in, and my mom as a school nurse. And so they they kind of had me covered on both fronts, both at school and at church. And uh, I, I loved my Christian upbringing. I, because I was a youth pastor's kid, I was at all those disciple nows and youth events. And I was a little kid running around and getting in trouble at the church and, <laughs> uh, you know, found me hiding in the baptistry and all those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, the all the high school boys were picking me up and putting me on their shoulder as somewhat of a mascot for the youth group. And all the high school girls were kiss me on the cheek and tell me how cute I was and <laughs> have me sit on, the, have me sit on their lap during the worship service. It was, it was a tough life. I tell you, it was real rough. Uh, I love uh, growing up in the church. I love the church to this day. Um, it has had huge influence and it's been a mostly positive influence in my life. Unlike I think some testimonies of people who weren't influenced so well by church. I'm just the opposite. I, I've always loved church and my parents have been a huge influence and still today are huge uh, influences on my life and great friends. And both of them are very faithful followers of Christ. And um, and they have modeled that for me and have taught me what it means to love uh, Jesus and to walk in his ways. And so for that, I'm, I'm forever grateful to my parents for teaching me those things. Uh, and they brought me uh, to faith, uh, helped me to to learn the ways of Christ very early in life, which I'm I'm again grateful for. Um, as as most church brats, um, I had that that moment of time where I had to move the faith from being my parents' faith to being my own. Really struggling, you know, in my teenage years, dealing with secret sins and struggles, as I think all of us deal with on some level or another, and really coming to the the realization that I need the grace of God, regardless of uh, how quote unquote good uh, I am with regard to church attendance and all the normal, you know, things that I think uh, we as uh, Christians fall into of believing that somehow we're uh, meriting our salvation through our good deeds or our church attendance or morality or something of that sort, really realizing what grace is and understanding true uh, the true meaning of salvation and following Christ in my own life. And uh, at a fairly young age, around the age of 17, 18, I was going through uh, the study by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God and really felt just this overwhelming uh, impression upon my life to to preach and to teach and to be a part of the ministry. And so I really felt God was calling me into ministry and uh, went to Hardin Simmons University where I got my Bible degree and then on to Southwestern to get my master's and then m much later in life went on to get my uh, my doctoral work there at New Orleans and uh, have have been in ministry my entire adult life and uh, and I love serving the Lord. I've uh, I'm summarizing a lot that's happened in the, all those years uh, along with uh, getting married, having four children, and all those things. But um, I have uh, you know unique testimony in that when I was younger, when someone were you know if someone were to ask you, for example, when did you come to know that your mom was your mom, or when did you come to know that your dad was your dad? 
that's kind of like what I feel like. When did you come to know that Jesus was Lord? Um, I, I was taught Jesus is Lord from my my crib. I, I've always been taught and at some level always believed that to be true. Though I think for all of us in our life, we have to come to the point of a maturation of maturing in our faith to say, this is this is my faith, not just one I've inherited in a sense from my parents, but that, that grappling with that is a part of that Christian journey. Hmm. I didn't realize that you were a preacher's kid before we spoke today. So you, you said that you were basically swimming in Christian waters from the get-go. Do you think that was the chief thing that really helped you love church and, and love the Lord from the beginning? Because I've known a lot of preachers' kids, and that is not the story I often hear. Yeah, absolutely. It depends on the church. Uh, the, local, the local fellowships where my dad served were good churches, and they treated him well. Um, not all churches do that very well with the ministers. And sometimes, uh, you know, children see their their minister father or mother uh, mistreated by the church. Um, you know, and they see hypocrisy in in the walls of the church, which again, that's just a natural thing because people are humans and they make mistakes. They're sinners. Even Christian humans are, make mistakes and are sinners and and do bad things. And sometimes, uh, we we connect the behavior of church people with Christ Himself. And thus, many people abandon church, and in, do, in so doing, abandon Christ, and uh, that that is a horrible detriment. I think that's one of the reasons that Christ warns us not to cause the little ones to stumble, um, lest a millstone be tied around our neck and thrown into the deepest of seas. Because when we treat each other uh, without love, which is exactly what Christ says, this is how you will know them by their love, how they treat one another. Because he recognizes, I think, uh, that that very principle that when you treat people poorly, when you're uh, mistreating ministers of the gospel and the, the children are watching and they see that, then very likely they can they can stumble and, and walk away from the church because of the way they've seen their parents treated. Um, I was blessed to be in churches growing up that I'm sure weren't all perfect. My, my dad probably hid some of the secret uh, struggles he had with the deacon body here or there along the way as a youth <laughs> pastor, I'm sure. But uh, for the most part, my, my dad's experience with the church and with the denomination of Texas Baptist was always a very positive thing. And um, and I was able to uh, to be involved with it at a very early age, even from when he when he was when he moved into the denominational work. I began to go to a lot of the super summer camps and the youth evangelism camps and, and ministries that he was involved in and leading and, and got to see kind of another side of the church as well. That was always, to me, exciting and fun and uh, something I always look forward to being a part of, not something at all that I dreaded. So when did you first encounter C.S. Lewis? And you, you've, you've mentioned that you love him. What role has he actually played in your spiritual life? I don't remember the particular moment that I first encountered C.S. Lewis because I think like the Bible. I, I don't remember the first time I would encounter the Bible. I think I was introduced to him at such a young age, especially with the Narnia books and children's uh, stories and things that he wrote so eloquently. I think they always had an influence on me because my dad uh, liked C.S. Lewis and and his dad before him, I think, liked C.S. Lewis. And so I think we were uh, we kind of grew up around Christian writings, C.S. Lewis being one of those writers, especially with regard to children's stories. And so there wasn't a, a particular time that I remember, you know, aha, here's C.S. Lewis. I've just always grown up being influenced by him on some level. And, and in my college years, I do remember uh, picking up mere Christianity for the first time and beginning to to read through it and being very impressed with how 
he handled uh, some of the difficult situations and the difficult uh, questions of Christianity and bringing it down to the basics. Uh, the problem of pain, uh, one of the greatest theodicies I think have ever been penned and uh, still today is my go-to uh, when when helping somebody through uh, pain and suffering um, and, and many others. I, one of my favorite uh, YouTube uh, channels today is uh, uh, Doodles. Uh, C.S. Lewis Doodles, I think, or something, yeah, right, uh, where where they have all the pictures along with his writings that, because I'm a very visual learner, and so not only listening to what he's saying, but seeing these beautiful pieces of work of art kind of drawn out as he's speaking helps me to follow along with with his words real real clearly, and uh, and that's that's still something I watch pretty regularly as well. Yeah, I've been reaching out to the C.S. Lewis doodle guy, trying to convince him to come on the show. And I also want his doodles. I want them in print form so I can put them up around my office. That's that's smart. I think that would be a a, a, thing, a good thing for him to to print up and do if if he if he wanted to publish something. Exactly. I would I would buy many. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. So, are there any particular of Lewis's books that are your favorites today? You know, I'd have to say Narnia. Just the stuff on Narnia, just because it, it had the most influence on me and my children. Um, mm. at least initially, just, um, just the, the, the stories, obviously the, the imagery, the imagination of a, of a small child imagining the world of Narnia. Um, the same with uh, the Tolkien's books. I mean, uh, it's, it's the same kind of thing. There's just a, a, a huge influence when it comes to stories that take you into a kind of a fantasy world, but still teach you, uh, Christian values. And I think that's, I will always be, uh, probably, uh, the most influenced by those stories, even more so than mere Christianity, problem of pain, screw tape letters, all of those things uh, I've loved and have influenced me, but um, probably not to the extent of, of Narnia. Whenever I'm giving a talk and somebody asks me the question where they should begin with Lewis, if they haven't read anything, I always suggest Narnia. And I always remind them, don't be put off because they are quote unquote children's books. You <laughs> You will be coming back to these for years. And I think Absolutely. this is actually how the Lord is teaching me patience because I have a seven month year old child and I'm going to have to wait at least another five years before we can go to Narnia together. Yes. Well, Nar Narnia is one of those places that everyone needs to visit. <laughs> <laughs> now, I didn't actually have any personal interactions with Baptists until my, I want to say mid twenties, I think. So for people who have similarly been living under a rock, would you mind giving us a quick overview of the Baptist denomination and some of the distinctives when it comes to Christian belief and practice? Well, just, just like any other denomination, I think especially in the Baptist world, it is not the Baptist denomination because there are many variant views of Baptists. Um, just like you would say, you know, what are the distinctives, distinctives of the Christian denomination or the, or mm. the Christian faith? There are many uh, sects of Christian Christianity within the world today, and uh, and so too with Baptist. You know, you got General Baptist versus Particular Baptists. Uh, you've got uh, Free Will Baptists. You've got um, throughout history, you've got uh, Independent Baptists, Southern Baptists, um, all different kinds of groups. And so, as a, as a Texas Baptist, we're a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the second. Well, it's the, it's the largest Protestant denomination in the world, and uh, and and just I think just behind as far as. Uh, you know, Catholicism as, as far as its size and number. Baptists aren't a monolith. They're not monolithic in that sense. And so I, I can't speak for all Baptists and I can't even speak for all Southern Baptists for that, for that matter, because even among Southern Baptists, there are distinctives. But 
some of the things that stand out uh, under you know the Baptist title is obviously because of the name Baptist, uh, you think of believers' baptism, and so some of the earliest uh, controversies uh, in in history had to do with baptism of infants versus the baptism of believers uh, uh, who come to believe at a a later uh, date of an age of accountability or an age where they're able to reason for themselves and and to make their own faith decisions. And so that would be probably one of the biggest markers of Baptist is that we baptize um, believers uh, upon the time that they believe and put uh, faith in Christ not uh, at birth. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't dedicate our babies. There's baby dedications and those kinds of things where a Baptist will will pray over their child and uh, commit to, to raising their child in the way that they should go and and uh, you know ask for the Lord's care over the child um, and those kinds of things. But um, baptism is reserved for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, I've noticed that Lewis tends to be more popular among certain denominations and I've said this before, I keep coming across Presbyterians who absolutely love him. How would you say he fares among the Baptists? I think probably just as highly as he does among Presbyterians, as far as I know. Um, I have not, I've not heard uh, people speak negatively of, of Lewis. In fact, I hear him quoted from quite regularly uh, among uh, my Baptist colleagues. And, um, and so uh, that, that's, that's what I was mentioning earlier. He is one of those figures in history because of, I think, his writing style and his skill to kind of rise above the fray of the denominational lines um, because his writings are ecumenical enough uh, to to appeal to all the different groups. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants to claim him. (laughs) (laughs) They do. Yes, they do. What areas of Jack's theology would you say particularly align well with Baptist theology? Um, You know, that's, that's a good question. I don't I, I, I mean, uh, there's there's probably a lot of different nuanced points or points that you could you could highlight uh, with regard to the the major tenets of the Christian faith. Um, I, I think all of the things that you would find in the Apostles' Creed, for example, the the major uh, claims of what Christian what makes Christianity Christianity, of course, would would be um, uh, across the board with with all of our theological statements and, and our statements of faith. And that's one of the reasons I think that C.S. Lewis is so appealing to so many different groups is because um, he does hold to a mainline mere Christianity. And, and the whole the whole book, Mere Christianity, is really that is really that. It's breaking it down to here's here's what we believe, here's the the most base level foundational doctrinal truths that we hold to in common. And though one or two theologians here or there may nitpick some aspect of something C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, I Theologians think most nitpicking. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it happens. Believe it or not, uh, I think I think most um, well-intending Christians who are rational thinkers can come to a, a point of agreement with regard to much, if not all, of what C.S. Lewis wrote in in that particular work. Mm-hmm. And what about difficulties, though? Any parts of his theological and philosophical thought that don't gel quite so well with Baptist theology? I mean, for example, he was an Anglican, and they do pedo-baptism, they right. do infant baptism. So I'd imagine that'd be one. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's probably the one I was going to bring up that I would be familiar with. And uh, and I have not studied uh, in depth Lewis's views on 
baptism or the you know view of infants or what baptism is accomplishing and those kinds of uh, issues. And so I can't, I probably can't speak uh, very authoritatively with regard to uh, his his particular. Um, you know, views on baptism or infants and those kinds of things. But that would be ob the obvious difference between an Anglican and a, a Southern Baptist would be um, would be that particular doctrine, as I mentioned earlier. In Mere Christianity, he talks about how we receive the divine life. And there he points to baptism. So he sees that as regenerative. But he also talks about Holy Communion. He says people call it different things, the Mass, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. What is the Baptist view, or is there a Baptist view? What is the Baptist view on Holy Communion? What what is happening there? Most Baptists, myself included, would describe the Lord's Supper is is what we would re refer to it as as a, um, a symbolism or a a sign of what it represents, which is communion with God, uh, relationship with the Father. Um, so, in reference to John six and other pa passages that are often. Uh, talked about with regard to, uh, you know, taking of the Lord, they would be equal to coming to Christ, would be partaking of Christ, would be coming to him in faith. And so mm -hmm. when we're remembering him, uh, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of, of Christ. And so when we stop and take the Lord's Supper, one of the ordinances, there's two ordinances in the Baptist church, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And when we do the Lord's Supper, we do it as a remembrance of what he did uh, on the on the cross through the blood and uh, which would represent from from the the Jews and because ba Baptists are typically teetotalers not always um, but but many are especially in the Southern Baptist history uh, so it'd be grape juice not literal wine typically in the typical Southern Baptist church and um, and that's not to try to say by the way that there's not Baptists who do partake. There are, there are many mm -hmm. Baptists who do partake uh, uh, in a ca casual way, but historically, for the last hundred years or so, most most Baptists would not partake in alcohol, um, in, in, in my experience at least. But the 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 juice would represent the wine, and the bread would represent the body of Christ that was given. But there's no salvific um, or special ontological change of, of, of sorts that takes place from the the drinking of the, the the juice or the bread, but instead that it's merely symbolic as a remembrance of what he did in his sacrifice. So it's more akin to doing it because Jesus said to and remembering him while we're doing it rather than necessarily receiving particular kind of grace through it. Is that fair? Correct. Oh, well, I, I would just add to that, that even, even among Anglicans and others who use ordinances um, or um, the Lord's Supper or these kinds of things, sometimes they're not necessarily saying that the the act itself is what causes the grace or the the imputation of that grace, but the the faith by which you do that thing. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's where we would have some common ground that we would say, yes, faith is what God sees the heart. He's not he's not looking at the external things that you're doing, i.e taking of the piece of bread and eating it. He's looking at your heart, the intentions of your heart. And I think our Anglican brothers and sisters, as well as many of our Catholic, would say very much the same thing. They're not looking, God's not looking at the outward appearance of man or the thing that he's doing. He's looking at the heart and he wants to see a heart of faith. He wants to see that one is doing this out of faith, not out of obligation or 
you know, because it's just rote or because, you know, I'm supposed to right now because my parents said so, whatever that may be, <laughs> he's looking at the heart. And so there is some common ground there. And a lot of times uh, Protestants, Baptists, my, myself included, look at the other side, the people who are using ordinances and sometimes falsely accuse them of believing something that maybe they don't necessarily believe. Yeah, I think pretty much all of the other denominations, they wouldn't downplay the fact that what they are receiving, even if it is more of a real presence theology, they would still say that it is ultimately received by faith. And and that is the, that is going to right. determine whether the fruit is born of receiving Holy Communion or not. Exactly. Now, you mentioned teetotalism there, uh, and Lewis definitely wasn't. <laughs> uh, so I actually don't know, where does this come from in the Baptist tradition? Was it just a, a push back against drunkenness? How did that association with teetotalism develop? You know, I, I don't know the history of that, to be honest with you. I was just raised with it. Um, my parents didn't have a drop of alcohol in the house uh, growing up. And I don't know that it necessarily had to do with only uh, like a denominational uh, adherence, like you had to follow that way of thinking. I think it was it was just something that was kind of expected in that generation. Um, but uh, my generation, my brother, myself, uh, my, both my brothers, myself, all of us uh, occasionally partake um, in, in our own households and things like that, have it in our own households. And it's not hidden. We don't hide it from our children or anything like that. We, we, we teach them um, that like all the gifts that God gives, um, that we should do things in moderation and with care. Um, sweets, you know, can be abused. Uh, yeah. Sugar can be abused. Now, obviously, alcohol is not on the same par and level with uh, with, um, with sweets, but but it's the example. Um, and the example I've used with my kids when I'm when I'm teaching them about these things is is uh, fire. Uh, and I usually am sitting by the fireplace when I point it out, and I say, fire is a great gift from God. And when it's inside that fireplace, it is wonderful. But if it sparks outside that fireplace and catches the carpet on fire or gets outside of control, it can d damage us and even destroy us. It can kill us. Um, sex, sex is that way. And partaking of alcohol can be that way or any medication, uh, altering medications can, can be that way, can be abusive and be abused um, when it's not, when it's taken outside the confines of the purpose for which it's, it's been uh, sent for us to use. And so I, I think teaching young people moderation and care over things versus just forbidding it altogether or, or making it uh, making it completely evil or treating as it as completely evil. I think some sometimes that causes people to want to go after it even more. It makes it even yeah. more detrimental and more uh, hurtful to, to, to forbid something uh, versus to say um, that, that God's given it as a gift and therefore should be used in the in, in the way he intended it to be used. Uh, versus being abused and then hopefully teaching your children how to make those kinds of wise decisions as as adults but everybody is different on on that particular viewpoint and um, some say i would rather err on the side of caution and just not have anything to do with alcohol on any level and and that that is their business i, I think just like in jesus's day and paul's teaching uh, some some don't choose to eat certain kinds of meat and when I'm around them, guess what? I don't eat that that kind of meat. I don't. I, I don't eat that. I don't want to cause them to stumble. I don't want to uh, be a stumbling stone to them. And so I, I could simply uh, refrain from doing that. I don't need to do it. So there's no reason for me to cause a division among my brothers by doing it. And so that that's one of the reasons that I typically don't partake in public, or I don't ever, you know, uh, bring a, a, a bottle of wine to the the church potluck or something of that <laughs> nature. 
um, which may be the case in, uh, in other denominations. It's not a, that big of a deal in other denominations, but among Southern Baptists, that's kind of a, a faux pas, so to speak. Mm. In fact, I'd say it's probably a good argument for Catholicism or Orthodoxy. We typically have the best wine. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I want to turn to your work with Soteriology 101, where you respond to the claims of Calvinism. And I had uh, Pastor Douglas Wilson on the show this season, and I asked him the same question I'm going to ask you. Was C.S. Lewis a Calvinist? No. Uh, not, not, he was definitely not a Calvinist by how we understand Calvinism today. Um, and I've listened to Doug Wilson's uh, arguments for claiming that that Lewis was Calvinistic, and he sort does <laughs> give yeah he he does give the caveat of how it was understood back in his day as to what Calvinism entails versus what we are typically talking about when we talk about soteriological Calvinistic tulip, for example. Um, but just explain tulip for our listeners if they haven't come across it before. Yeah, tulip is the acrostic that's kind of a memory device that was created, you know, just probably a century or so ago and became popularized uh, in more modern times of kind of describing five major points of Calvinism sociologically that kind of breaks it down in a simple, easy to way, easy way to understand kind of format. And the T stands for total depravity, which um, has to do with the fact that we're born um, guilty for what Adam did in the garden. And, and because of that sinful nature that we're born with, uh, we cannot even respond positively to the offers of God's grace through the gospel. Um, we will always say no to the gospel. We will always reject it. We will always hate the things of God uh, because of the nature we're born with, um, and the fallen nature under Adam that we're born with. And, and some, some like uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, R.C. Sproul, and others even say it's it's more like total inability, that you're morally incapable of wanting to respond positively. So it's not like it's not like God uh, is keeping people who want to come in from coming in on Calvinism. It's they would say, no, 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 it's, it's that you don't, you, your wanter is broken, is the way Sproul put it. Uh, you, you, you don't want the things of God because of the nature you were born with, the sinful, corrupt, fallen nature you were born with, you will always say no to to even the offers and the appeals of God's grace to be reconciled because of your hatred, your innate hatred towards the things of God. And so that, that's kind of the concept of the T. The U stands for unconditional election on Calvinism, and this is the idea that God unconditionally, meaning without condition, chose certain individuals before the foundation of the world that he is going to save through effectual or irresistible means. Uh, and so what he's going to do is uh, he's, he's picked people and he doesn't pick them based upon foreseen faith or uh, their morality, good good or bad deeds they end up doing or anything of that sort. It's a very, it's a unilateral choice. It's not, so some would even say, matter of fact, Lewis and um, Calvin both called it an arbitrary choice. Uh, most Calvinists today avoid that terminology because arbitrary carries kind of a negative connotation, uh, as you can imagine. But the, the word arbitrary, uh, defined uh, in, in the appropriate way, is, I think, accurate. There's a very arbitrary or unilateral choice of God prior to the creation that he picks certain individuals and, and somehow causes them to believe. The L uh, goes to the limited aspect of the atonement or particular redemption, which is basically to say that that those God's chosen before eternity passed, in eternity past, 
he will die for. And so Christ didn't come to die for the sins of everyone. He came to die for the sins of his elect, those he's chosen. And I stands for irresistible grace. These are the ones he calls to himself by an effectual or irresistible grace. So this doesn't mean he's grabbing people and dragging them to heaven, kicking and screaming. Uh, no, it's, he's changing their nature, that inborn nature that was corrupt, that always says no to God. He changes their nature to make them want to say yes. And they will certainly say yes because he chose them and because he graces them with a grace that's irresistible and it will draw or drag or compel them all to himself. So anybody he selects before the foundation of the world, he will certainly save. And the perseverance is basically the concept and idea of those elect will never leave uh, the faith. Uh, if you're truly been elect and you truly been saved, uh, that will be evidenced by the fact that you you continue in that faith. And so that that's basically tulip in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And how does Lewis fare with tulip? Well, he um, very specifically critiques aspects of tulip. Um, he he actually addresses um, certain por portions of it, and even uh, even critiques the T of total depravity as inability. When he writes this, he says, if God's moral judgments differ from ours so that our black may be his white, then we can mean nothing by calling him good. For to say God is good while asserting that his goodness is wholly other than ours is really only to say God is we know not what. An utterly unknown quality and God cannot give us moral grounds for loving or obeying him. If he is not in our sense good, we shall obey, if at all, only through fear and should be equally ready to obey an omnipotent fiend or a all-powerful demon is what that means. Uh, the doctrine of total depravity, when the consequence is drawn that, since we are totally depraved, our idea of God is worth simply nothing, may thus turn Christianity into a form of devil worship, end quote. And that's from the problem of pain. And so this is a critique of the doctrine of total depravity because what he's ultimately saying, as you can probably discern being a, a student of Lewis yourself, is he's, he's basically saying if our depraved nature causes us to only hate the things of God and to see his good as bad and our bad as good, then on what basis are we to even claim that we're worshiping a good God? Um, and, and so he's, he's undermining this entire concept of, uh, of total moral inability from birth that we are born without ultimately the image of God uh, where we're able to discern right from wrong. The conscience, uh, I think Lewis, even in other writings, re refers to a God-shaped hole inside us all. And that, that, that thirst that we have, that longing that we have for God is evidence uh, that God exists and that he desires for us to be reconciled with him. Um, and that seems to be undermined by this concept of total inability and uh, this, this concept of the, that we're born haters of God by nature. Um, and my pushback on my program has, has been very similar to that of Lewis, and I've used Lewis uh, quite regularly to, to reference this, to ultimately say the reason that we're blameworthy is because we are able to, to know and understand and see the revelation of God for what it is, and, and we're able to suppress it or to accept it. And when we therefore suppress it or trade it in for lies, we're held culpable for doing that because we could have done otherwise. Whereas on Calvinism, in no meaningful sense, you could have done otherwise because your wanter was broken from birth. And you're just doing what you're doing by nature, by necessity, because of the way you were ultimately born. I think Lewis 
fought against that kind of tendency of ultimately removing human responsibility. And uh, he he seemed to always, when talking about the doctrines of predestination and election, he always seemed to side, at least in in, in my readings of him, with a, a more Arminian or non-Calvinistic uh, perspective. Um, and and men like uh, obviously Wilson um, tend to read uh, Lewis much like they read the Scriptures, um, with their their tent towards their side. And it seems to me that you can find your doctrine in anybody's teaching if you try hard enough. Uh, and it seems that they've done that with Paul and they do it with Lewis as well, even though Lewis is quite explicit in his denial of some of the core tenets of, uh, you know, John Calvin type of Calvinism, at least. I would imagine if I'm understanding total depravity correctly, it also causes a problem with regards to apologetics. Because if we are totally depraved, then not only can we not use the argument from desire, because who is to say that your desires are good? We also can't even use the argument for morality because if you are unregenerate, you have no moral, ultimate moral sense to begin with. Is that fair? I think you're exactly right. Um, that this is, I, I think it undermines a lot of the apologetic arguments. Um, you mentioned Braxton Hunter earlier in your program, and I think he's been one of the, the best apologists out there who are, who are making these kinds of cases in his arguments against atheism. He's using the free will argument for his case for God, just like people use the morality argument for the case of God's existence. You can also use the concept of free will, meaning libertarian free will, of course. And so uh, I, I think you're right. I think that goes right along with what true apologetics looks like. I had watched some of Pastor Wilson's uh, description of Calvinism within Narnia. And when he was talking about total depravity, he pointed to Eustace's undragoning. And he pointed to the fact that Eustace started clawing at his skin and only just took off one layer. To me, that wouldn't seem like total depravity because it means that he was at least trying to undragon himself. And there's a big difference between trying to be better, not being able to do it and needing someone else, Aslan, to do it for you versus not even knowing that you're a dragon, not even trying. Yeah, that, that section of uh, Wilson's uh, clip is very telling because what you see Wilson doing here is he's he's saying, let's look for the tulips in Narnia, and he makes uh, several jokes about that. <laughs> um, versus Arminian daisies. I did like that bit, I must admit. Right, the Arminian daisies. Which, which, yeah, when he says, you know what Arminian daisy is? Uh, I lo- he loves me, he loves me not. Which, ironically, Arminians say God loves everybody. It's the Calvinist who says, he loves me, he loves me not. Um, he loves some people and he hates others, according to Calvinism. The Armenian says he loves everybody. The provisionist says he loves everybody. And so I, I think what he's meaning is he loves me, he loves me not, meaning you can lose salvation, which of course, mm-hmm. that's not a, a, a jab at, at Baptist provisionist, at least, because we do t- t- tend to uh, agree with the concept of eternal security because we do believe regeneration has an eternal impact. But uh, nevertheless, um, the Eustace example is, like you said, I think a very bad one. One, uh, he wasn't born a dragon. <laughs> he became a dragon because of his bad behavior. In other words, it was a judgment against his free decisions. It wasn't something he was naturally born as, which would uh, not be true on the Calvinistic system of total inability. Uh, you're born that way for reasons beyond your control. Uh, Eustace wasn't a dragon for reasons beyond his control. He was that way because of his 
his stubborn nature and the way in which he was acting freely. And uh, apparently, based upon his brothers and sisters' uh, behaviors, he didn't have to act like that. He was choosing to act like that and thus being judged uh, in, in that world of Narnia because of his acting uh, poorly. Uh, second way that, that that analogy fails is that his ability, it talks about, uh, Wilson talked about his inability to heal himself. He, he's scratching away these, these um, you know, the dragon skin, trying to heal himself. We're not trying to say that anybody can heal themselves. And this is one of the, the big misunderstandings that some people get when it comes to trying to explain Calvinism or Arminianism or any view in between, is that no Christian that I'm aware of says that we're healing ourselves. And if you think that's unique to Calvinism, that's uniquely Calvinistic, that we can't heal ourselves and you don't understand uh, basic Christianity, mere Christianity, because nobody says they can heal themselves. Because the inability to heal yourself is not the same as the inability to confess that fact in light of the gospel. And that seems to be what Doug is trying to, to insinuate there, is that it's uniquely a Calvinistic doctrine to believe that you can't heal yourself. And that's not uniquely Calvinistic at all. Uh, of course, Lewis wouldn't believe that you can heal yourself. No Arminian in the world, including Jacobus Arminius, believed you could heal yourself, but he certainly believed you were responsible for confessing that fact in light of the law and the gospel, calling you to faith and repentance. Um, he, he talks, it, it's, it's this whole concept of the works versus faith. Um, and when you really understand works versus faith, works is the scraping off of the skin of the dragon. Faith is trusting in Aslan. Okay. And so what is, what is Lewis trying to teach? Don't try to work your own salvation by scratching off your own skin. Trust in Aslan. Trust in the Savior. Pretty basic. That, that's not uniquely Calvinistic at all. Not even remotely uniquely Calvinistic at all. Now, maybe he thinks it's, it's unique to Protestant theology versus Catholics works-based theology or something of that nature. I, I think you'd have to make a case for that because I think even some of my Calvinist friends might have issues with uh, that that dichotomy as well. Um, but it certainly doesn't hit uh, Arminians or provisionists in any significant way. Um, he, he goes on to even say uh, the the story of Eustace is, quote, we cannot save ourselves. Again, that is not uniquely Calvinistic. None of us believe we can save ourselves. But belief that you can trust in the saving truth and provision of God is not the same thing as saving yourself. Confessing your sins doesn't forgive you of your sins. God still has to forgive. Christ still has to atone. Um, so uh, confessing that you need a Savior it, it may be necessary, but you still need to be saved by that Savior. And so this concept and idea that we can't save ourselves uh, is, is not uniquely Calvinistic at all. Um, lastly, I would I would mention, he says, all, all our goodness, this is a quote from, from Wilson, all of our goodness is from the grace of God. And again, we would agree with that. We just don't believe that that grace is necessarily irresistible. In other words, of course, you can say, yes, all the grace that I have, all the goodness that I have in, in me is from the grace of God. But what about that statement insinuates that the grace of God was irresistible or could not have been traded in for lies or could not have been suppressed? There's nothing about that. And so, he, he he continues to read Lewis as if he's uniquely Calvinistic, but noth, none of the points that he gives are uniquely Calvinistic at all. Um, and it's interesting. There's a piece from the the voyage of the Don Treader that Lewis is referring to with Eustace, and it says this. I want to read it to you. Quote: Then the lion said, 
but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought I had gone right into my, it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. Now notice there what, what the responsibility of Eustace was. It was to allow him to undress you, to lay there and let him do that work. And this is exactly the same kind of illustration you'll hear me give on my program when I talk about needing a new heart. Of course, we need a new heart. I can't give myself heart surgery. But when the doctor gives me his diagnosis, which is exactly what the law is, giving me a diagnosis of my sin, of my wrongdoing, of the corruptness of my heart, what is my responsibility? To do exactly what he just, to lay flat on my back and let him do it. Mm. To allow the heart surgeon to do what only a heart surgeon can do. I certainly can't cut my heart out and give myself a new heart. I cannot save myself, but I submit to the knife of the surgeon. I lay there and let him do it which is exactly the verbiage of C.S. Lewis. You can sort of see how we end up in this situation, though, because the scriptures talk about predestination. They seem to describe free will. We seem to be immediately in a paradox, and it's the question of how, how do you resolve all of these statements in a coherent manner? We, we've almost got an impossible task to be able to parse all of that out. And I would say it, it probably depends largely on the, th the philosophy that you bring to your theology as to what you will think is possible and what isn't, what you're going to absolutize and what you're not. When it says that God desires the salvation of all people and to come to knowledge of the truth, is that strictly all or is that only some? Well, I, I obviously believe that it's all. And there's even some Calvinists who believe that it's all. Uh, namely Charles Spurgeon and, and and others that take the two will of God approach by saying, well, that's the prescriptive will of God, that he prescriptively or externally expresses his desire for all to be saved. But secretly, the creative will is that not all are effectually or irresistibly graced or unconditionally elected to salvation. And this is how they get around those kinds of passages. Now, other higher forms of Calvinist would say, no, he means all types of people, and, and therefore they try to, to get around that text using uh, a different method of interpretation to ultimately say he means all kinds of people versus literally all people. Um, and so there's different ways in which Calvinists historically have dealt with texts text like that. But I think uh, from it's pretty obvious from reading Lewis that he would have taken it to mean that God genuinely desires the salvation of all and has provided the means for anyone and everyone to be saved. Hmm. My favorite book is The Great Divorce, and it deals towards the end with the questions of time and eternity. And MacDonald is Lewis's guide, and in it he says, you cannot fully understand the relations of choice and time till you're beyond both. I was interested to know what you make of that. Are we really unable to grasp the intricacies of these debates around free will and determinism while we're still mortal creatures in time? I know Dr. James White likes to invoke mystery. Is there a sense in which he's right that when we're dealing with the things that the scriptures describe, God's plan of salvation, don't we necessarily bump up against mystery somewhere? We all appeal to mystery, and our desire is obviously to, to appeal to mystery where the Bible affords mystery. 
um, I think the scripture does reveal in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to God. Um, and, and we have to trust that his ways are higher than our ways. Um, but mystery is different than contradiction. And, and I do believe that some of the unique claims of the Calvinistic soteriology leads us to direct contradictions. Um, some, some refer to it as an antinomy, uh, J.I. Packer, for example, um, where it's just true that God controls ultimately what choices you'll make, but it's also true that God holds you accountable uh, for the choices that you make because you're free in your decision to make those choices. Um, and and how to reconcile those? They just appeal to to mystery. Well, I I think that's a, a blatant contradiction to call something free that is determined by someone other than the agent being held morally accountable. I think that's just a contradiction, and and so does some uh, other Calvinist. In fact, that's one of the reasons that you have Edwards uh, being more popularized through John Piper is because John Piper wrote against J.I. Packard, saying no, it's not an antinomy. Um, th this this is logical. This is rational, and then. The way he makes it all fit is by ultimately redefining free free will to mean uh, you're doing freely what you desire. Uh, as long as you desire to do what you do, it is free and thus morally accountable. But behind the scenes, of course, is uh, why do you desire it? And the reason you desire it is, as we already described in the tulip, uh, you're either born dead in a, a spiritual sense of corruption and depravity where you only desire to do that which is evil and you will never desire to do that which is good unless God regenerates you and gives you a new nature, causing you to want to do the right thing, uh, which is just another form of determinism. And so what they've done is defined the word freely to mean determinism, where ultimately you're free as long as you're doing what you want, but your wants are controlled by God. But we're still going to call it free kind of like you're a domino in a series. You are freely falling, but everything was set up around you so that you would fall. Exactly. And that's and that's a, a mechanistic uh, analogy, but the analogy I think is uh, is correct in the comparison to the fact that a domino is determined to fall when it's hit by another domino. In the same way, you as a depraved individual are born determined to reject the gospel. Unless, of course, your a new domino hits you, another domino hits you, which is irresistible grace, which is uh, unilaterally given to you by God. And, and ultimately, people who therefore end up in hell are there because of factors beyond their control. They were born a reprobate. They were born hated by their God, and therefore they hate God. Um, and uh, in, the, in the same way, those who end up in heaven are there because of factors completely beyond their control. Uh, they they loved God because God loved them in an effectual kind of love that caused them to love him back. And basically, you've got kind of a faded worldview where you're ultimately from birth fated to either love God or to hate him uh, for factors beyond your control. And C.S. Lewis rejected this outright, clearly in his writings. Um, and and for people to try to claim that he he is one of them in that sense, that he's a theistic determinist in any way, shape, or form, or would be Calvinistic, uh, uniquely Calvinistic sociologically uh, in, in any way, shape, or form, I think is a huge stretch. Hmm. Well, I'm hoping to have Pastor Wilson back on the show next season to talk about his book, What I Learned in Narnia. So I hope the exploration of these issues will continue. But I actually do have one other question. Because when you mentioned the perseverance of the saints, you said that there is a similar Baptist doctrine, the idea that once somebody has been regenerated, they can't fall. Now, that would be something that I would say Lewis would have disagreed with. 
And the Narnian example, although I will absolutely admit it is not conclusive, and he said her story wasn't told yet, Susan does appear to no longer be a friend of Aslan or Narnia. How would you respond to that? Do you think that you could fit that within your theological system or not? Well, I, I do think that Southern Baptists particularly have been uniquely uh, um, supportive of the doctrine of eternal security or what some people, you know, in short call once saved, always saved. And I can't say with any amount of certainty that Lewis held to that perspective. Um, uh, I, I'm not even aware of his addressing of that issue. I'm, I'm certainly not going to suggest that Narnia or his teachings on Narnia would in any way support that concept. Um, but th that is one of those open-handed issues, even among Arminians, as, as well as many provisionists, in the vernacular that's used to describe what that means. Um, because all of us believe, at least at the time of glorification, there's a, a point of no return, so to speak. There's a point by which he seals you in him in the sense that your nature is changed in such a way that the desires to go back or the desires to to leave him would never uh, would would never happen. Uh, and and I don't know of many people who believe that you can apostatize from heaven um, in our glorified state. Um, well, what most Southern Baptists are basically saying is that 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 point of no return is at the point of regeneration, when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell within us and seal us in Him. That that's when that change takes place. Now that that point can be contended with, and I'm certainly uh, not arguing that Lewis held to it, but I'm just pointing it out that even among provisionist Arminians, there are some who disagree as to when that point of no return, so to speak, happens. It's either at glorification or maybe it happens earlier at regeneration, but nonetheless, it does happen. So if you would have a Christian who would, to all outward appearance, seem to have a conversion, go to Bible college, become a pastor, and then ultimately apostatize, would you just claim that? They had never been truly regenerate. Well, I would, I would claim I don't know um, because I don't, I don't Safer. know their heart. God's, yeah. Well, no. The truth is, I don't know. It, there's, there's three options that are that are that are possible. Um, one, they could be a backslidden Christian. In other words, they're truly redeemed, but they're in a backslidden state for reasons that I don't know about. Um, maybe carnality has entered in their life. They're slipping away in the sense of going their own direction, doing their own thing. And there's lots of. Uh, Warnings against this in Scripture, I think, of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They're saved, but through the, only through the fire types of folks who were, were believers and followers of Christ, uh, redeemed, but were living carnal lives. So that, that's one option. Uh, another option is that they were, really were never believers in the first place. They were wolves in sheep's clothing, so to speak. They were uh, maybe self-deceived in some ways. The, the ones uh, that Jesus spoke of when he said, uh, you know, um, Lord, Lord, uh, did we not? perform many miracles? Do we not do all these things? And, and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. There was, in other words, there was never a relationship here. So th those are the first two options right there. And I don't even know the difference between those two because I can't see the, f I can only see the fruit. I can't see the root. Um, but the, my, my Armenian friends are, are those who believe in, in a, a, a form of apostasy that one can lose their salvation. That would be the third possibility. Now, so I can believe in three possibilities or just two possibilities, or, but, but still, I don't know the difference between the three. And the, the, that's the whole point. It's a semantical difference, if nothing else, because how am I going to treat that person, regardless of which of the three categories they fall into? I'm going to call them to reconciliation. I'm going to call them to repentance um, because I don't know the heart of the man. Only God knows that. And so um, that, that's one of the reasons that this, this 
view on, in my perspective, is such an open-handed issue is because for all practical purposes, I would treat that person who's living carnally as one who needs reconciliation, calling them to repentance, not knowing the eternal state, because I have no idea what their heart is or where their heart is. Um, and so I, I would have to trust God to bring judgment. And all I can do is call them to repentance. Dr. Flowers, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. I hear the call for final drinks, grape juice all round. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, people can go to Sociology101.com to learn more about what we've talked about regarding Calvinism, free will, predestination. I started this podcast uh, five or six years ago, I guess it's been now, um, in order to address my own journey in into Calvinism and back out of Calvinism. I was a Calvinist for a good 10 years. And I wrote a couple of books on the subject that you can find more information about there at Sotriology101.com. I've got a, a broadcast on YouTube. If you were to type in that same that same term or my name, you would find it as well. Um, but my real job, a lot of people don't realize that Sociology 101 <laughs> is just a, a side gig that I do for fun uh, in my spare time. Uh, some people like to watch sports and politics and all these kinds of things. I, I theology geek out on YouTube. And so that's that's my pastime. But um, my real job is as an evangelism director for Texas Baptist, as you read earlier in my bio. And so uh, the, the bulk of my day is spent training in evangelism uh, and apologetics and planning events around the state of Texas, training churches and individual church members on how to evangelize the lost. Wonderful. Well, thanks to Dr. Flowers again for coming on the show. Thanks to all of you for listening, our patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Deborah, Anonymous, Bill, Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. Please continue to follow us on social media. Uh, maybe share this link on your Facebook page and have some nice conversations with your Calvinist and Armenian friends. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>